0: This week, we will be looking at uh, everything that undergirds the practices that we have to further our path of discipleship. And so just to forewarn you, a few passages that we will um, be looking at will be passages like Romans 12, uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 12, and then Luke 18. Those are a few passages, just as a heads up, uh, it'll mostly be in the New Testament, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 12, and then Luke 18. Um, No shame in going to the contents if you need to move there quickly, but if you're able to have your fingers on those passages, that's probably helpful to begin with. So whether uh, we realize it or not, and I touched on this last week, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, you will be shaped by a pattern of life that is set before you. So everyone is going to be discipled by something. And this can happen in overt ways, like the family environment that you grew up in or the school environment, that's obviously going to have a significant impact in shaping you to be the person that you are today. This can also happen in more subtle ways, in more passive ways, like walking around a shopping center. As you walk around a shopping center, you're literally seeing thousands of advertisements, you're seeing uh, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of products and experiences, and you're being conditioned, whether you know it or not, in this path of consumerism, which is one where you are uh, conditioned to think that a new product or a new experience is going to satisfy you. You know, the idea of actually going to a uh, shopping center just to hang out is a very foreign idea to humanity. Shopping centers don't even need you to have a desire. You don't even need to have a desire to go to a shopping center. You just go to the shopping center and it will create desire within you. You'll see a new product, you'll see something else, and it's conditioning you to think that something new, uh, something bigger, something better, something shinier is necessary to really satisfy you. Now, there's a hundred other examples of this passive subconscious discipleship. How much are we discipled by the technology that we have? or the social media that we follow that's conditioning us toward this cycle of instant gratification and an inability to wait upon certain things. Now, the Bible is clear that we are to be very wary of this passive worldly discipleship. For example, in Romans 12, Paul warns against this passive worldly discipleship when he says in Romans 12, Uh, after verse one, looking particularly at verse two, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Now that's talking about a passive discipleship. That word there being conformed is something that uh, is, you're the passive actor. You're being acted upon by a pattern of this world that is shaping you in a particular way. And Paul is saying, don't do that don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, rather be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So there is a passive conforming to the pattern of this world that will happen to everyone unless there is active transformation, right? There's a passive conforming, We need to reject that and push against that and therefore be actively transformed, how? By the renewing of our minds. Now, I would say that is by intentional practices of discipleship. That's how we are going to not be conformed, but we are rather going to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We have to have concrete practices which reshape us and realign us to this path of discipleship. It's like if you're trying to grow a garden and you're passive in that, then all you're going to get is weeds. You don't need to do anything for weeds to come. To grow a garden, you need to be active. You need to be intentional in cultivating a good garden. You have to actively tend to that garden. Well, likewise, we have to actively tend to the gardens of our life. We have to actively cultivate um, practices that further us on this path of discipleship. So today we're going to look at three key practices that we have as a church that is meant to further this path of discipleship. Now, this is not specifically talking about individual practices that we do, like reading the word or praying. Um, That's for another time. This is more to do with the collective Practices that we have as a church and to understand why we do the things that we do. Why do we gather as God's people? Why do we have a thing like church membership? Why do we engage in church discipline? These are what I hope to cover today. So the three main practices that we're going to look at <clears throat> is formally gathering, with the church, so our formal gatherings, both this morning, this evening, and Wednesdays, church membership, and then church discipline. And I really hope that we can see what lies behind these things, so that they're not just arbitrary practices that we have. There is such a danger in this modern environment to just do things because other churches are doing it, or because we think it's something that Christians do. We must understand exactly why we do the things that we do. (coughs) Excuse me. So the first practice here is the formal gathering with the church. Now, this is not so much a theology of worshipping as the church, but rather it is about how gathering with the church, how what we're doing today is going to shape us as disciples. Now, as a church, we gather Sunday morning. We gather Sunday evening here at five o'clock. We gather Wednesdays at 7.30. Let's just focus for a moment, particularly on Sundays. Now, whether you hold Sunday as a Sabbath, whether you hold Sunday as a Lord's Day, or simply maybe you hold Sunday as just the day that Christ Church Tuggeron gathers together. This is not a discussion on a Sabbath or a Lord's Day principle. What we should understand, regardless of what you hold to, is that the principle that we clearly see in the Bible is to prioritize this day whenever we gather together with God's people. Since we are called, as Hebrews calls us, to not forsake the gathering of God's people, so we are to prioritize gathering with God's people. We as a church gather morning and evening on Sundays. And the purpose of dedicating a day to assemble and worship Christ is not, of course, so that we then get the other six days to do whatever we want in ignorance of Christ. The purpose of dedicating one day in particular <coughs> is so that every other day would be shaped By what happens on this day, the purpose to gather on this day is to condition ourselves. You might think of it as a launching pad, catapulting us so that the rest of our weeks would be glorious to God. So here's where the intentionality needs to come in as we gather. There needs to be intentionality from every member of the church to treat this day that we gather together as a day to grow as followers of Jesus Christ. Christ, to intentionally make sure that the day honors the Lord. This is why we ought to be preparing ourselves with intentional practices, like reading through the passage that we're going over. The irony that today we don't have a particular passage, but usually we would, intentionally reading over the passage to prepare ourselves so that as the sermon is preached, we are not playing catch up, but rather we're there and the Lord is speaking to us, and we've done a bit of groundwork. This is why we should be intentional in focusing upon the words that we are singing, so that they're not just mindless words. This isn't where our minds drift off, like I was saying last week, with some sort of Eastern meditation. Actually, this is where our minds are engaged. We ought to be intentional with these things, We ought to be intentional in our schedules so that this day is set apart that we're available for people. We're not having to rush off. Now, of course, things are going to come up. But as a general practice, we're intentional with making sure we're available for our brothers and sisters in Christ. If there is no intentionality, if we don't have this kind of intentionality to do with our gathering, then it's kind of like signing up to a gym and every week going to that gym and just sitting on a bench for an hour, not doing anything. Nothing's going to happen. You need to engage yourself. You need to exercise. You need to actually use the machines and lift some weights and do some things. You need to be intentional with these practices. Likewise, we must be intentional as we gather. We should even see how there is intentionality in the frequency of our gatherings as we gather morning and evening. Now, let me be clear. I do not believe there is any explicit command in scripture that says you must gather on Sunday morning and Sunday evening at a particular time. I believe there's liberty of conscience, but certainly we do see a clear pattern in scripture of morning and evening devotion. We see things like Psalm (coughs) one calling us to meditate upon the law of the Lord day and night. Blessed is that man. We see other principles like Psalm 92, which talks about it being good to declare the steadfast love of the Lord in the morning and his faithfulness by night. We see practices under the old covenant of daily morning and evening sacrifices. There was a practice of this morning and evening devotion. And the idea is not so much prescriptive to prescribe exactly how it must be done. But what we clearly see is a principle coming out of that, that there's a pattern there of morning and evening devotion so that from the beginning of our day to the end of the day, we are devoted to the Lord. So this is a pattern that we actually try and set. I don't know if you ever thought about that, but that's a pattern that we try and set as we gather on Sunday morning and Sunday evening. It's there to shape us, It's there to condition us, to remind us that we must declare the steadfast love of the morning and his faithfulness by night. It's to to shape us, to remember that the entire day belongs to the Lord, the entire week belongs to the Lord. So we don't do it as some do, as sort of an optional extra. Like if you uh, sleep in and can't come to the morning service, well, you just come to the evening We're not doing it as though the evening one is one for young adults or something like that. We're doing it for the whole of our church to gather morning and evening. And it is meant to shape us to remember that this God who gives us breath is to be worshipped throughout all our days. Now, just as the frequency, just as there is intentionality in the frequency of our gathering, and that ought to shape us, the way in which we gather as a unified people ought to shape us as well. The fact that we stay as one, the fact that we stay as one body in all of our gatherings is meant to shape us. We do not segregate ourselves off into particular age-appropriate groups or interest groups. Rather, we keep ourselves as one. (laughs) Churches often get to a size where the inevitable happens where it seems like 90% of the congregation only ever talk to 10% of the congregation. Like you get to that point and it just seems like it's so big that 90% of the people really have deep and meaningful relationships with about 10% of the people as if we have about nine or 10 people that we know and we just sort of click with those people. Now, I do not believe this has helped at all when churches facilitate segregating into smaller groups based on demographics or interests. Now, I'm not saying that you can never hang out with like-minded people or people of a similar age. Rather, what I am saying is that we don't need to facilitate segregating people into their common likes or common demographics, because that's gonna happen naturally. What we need to do rather is to facilitate the opposite. We need to facilitate the opposite so that in our environment, it is actually normal for a 14 year old girl to have a genuine love and concern for her 40 year old sister in Christ. We need to facilitate environments where it's very normal for people to have such a love and concern for their brother or sister, not because they have the same likes or dislikes, but because they have the same Lord and they are committed to that. And so that's why we stay together as one. If the church is truly to be one, just as Jesus prays that we will be one just as father and son are one, then this should transcend demographics and interests. This unity in our gatherings particularly shapes the parent child relationship. Just to give another example, we of course don't, uh, put our children out for uh, some sort of a kid's ministry during the service. Now, I don't want to put a um, complete uh, blacklisting on anyone who has some sort of age-appropriate teaching for children. I certainly don't think that should be done within the normal gathering, but I think at times perhaps there is an appropriateness of uh, age-appropriate teaching, but I'm not sure that we need to be immediately drawn to that. See, there there are theological reasons as to why we keep children in the service now. Uh, We we believe that preaching is a means of grace and we want our children to be under the means of grace. But that's not the point of this here. Rather, what I want to draw your attention to is how these things are actually shaping us. And I believe as a parent sitting there with my child under the preaching of their word. There is nothing quiet like having your children with you as the word is being preached. Even if you're trying to discipline your child there and they're tapping you and annoying you, there's nothing so tangible to think the primary responsibility of my child's discipleship falls upon me as you're sitting there and you are under the preaching of the word and your child is right there under your authority, it's a tangible reminder as you are sitting there that the primary responsibility of your child's discipleship is not teachers in a Sunday school, it is you. And that's why we keep everyone together. So we physically stay as one in our formal gatherings. And as we do that, we are tangibly reminded of this spiritual unity that we are called to. Now, the last part that I just want to focus on to round out the formal gatherings of our church and how that's shaping us is our time of prayer. So on Wednesdays, we gather for prayer. And I just want you to turn now to Luke 18. In Luke 18, there is a a parable that Jesus gives, (coughs) the parable of the persistent widow, And this is a startling parable. It's in Luke 18, verses 1 to 8. And Jesus prays this, notice in verse 1 so that the disciples ought always to pray and not lose heart. It is about persistent prayer. Now, as Jesus teaches this, he explains that there is an unjust judge and then there is the widow and the widow keeps coming back day after day in persistence before this unjust judge. And eventually, even though this judge is completely unjust, <clears throat> he ends up giving in to this widow because of her, some translations have shameless audacity because of her persistence in approaching the judge pleading for justice against her adversary. Now, Jesus says in verse seven, will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Answer implied is yes. Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now, this is startling to me that Jesus so clearly connects prayer and faith here. The mark of faith amongst Jesus' followers will be that they persist in prayer and they do not lose heart. They do not lose heart because they know that the character of their God is not like the unjust judge. So if the unjust judge gave, how much more is a just judge going to give justice? And so they persist in prayer. And so Jesus is saying, keep praying and do not lose heart. And the startling question he gives right at the end of that parable is, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Will he find evidence of this faith that is marked by persistence in prayer? This is why we prioritize prayer as a church. I do not believe that that gathering on a Wednesday is an optional extra. I believe it's, it's imperative, it's essential to our gathering as a church because prayer is so essential. And so we try and mark out an entire time to gather and pray. Not only this, but regularly praying with God's people is one of the most tangible reminders of our common dependence upon God. It is one of the most tangible reminders of our common dependence upon God. It is where we experience this unity, that I spoke of last week that Paul speaks of in Philippians 1.27, where he prays that we would stand firm together in one spirit. We experience this as we are praying because all of us who are praying for our various things, coming from our various backgrounds, are praying to the one Father by the one spirit in the name of the one Jesus Christ. We experience this unity as we do this together. Of course, we should be praying as individuals, but there is something unique There is something unique about praying together. Even if you don't verbally pray, there is something unique to coming together as one body and praying to the one Lord. There is something very tangible about how that shapes us to unity. And so my encouragement, as it always is, is, of course, to make these gatherings the non-negotiables of your week. Now, of course, there's going to be times, as I've said before, where life is going to happen. And as I said last week, I think there's just a courteous practice for members to actually just let people know when you're not going to be there. But there's, of course, no need to write an essay as to why you're not going to be there. We trust one another. Life is going to happen. But I think the, the thrust of our week should be that they are shaped around these gatherings with God's people. These gatherings where we are being shaped toward this path of discipleship, they are your nourishment. They are like oxygen to a deep sea diver. They are like fuel to a car. They are like our food and drink. They are shaping us to be more Christ-like. So that's what undergirds. That's the why of our formal gatherings. Now let's look at church membership Every follower of Jesus is called into the body of Christ. That's uh, an indisputable fact. And the way we experience the reality of the body of Christ is through a local body. So the vast majority of the New Testament is, of course, written to local churches. So many of these letters written to the church of God that is in Corinth or written to the church of the Thessalonians, or written to the churches, plural, of Galatia, because Galatia was a region that had many churches. So Paul writes to the churches of Galatia. They were written to local churches. That's how we experience all of the blessings within the body of Christ. Followers of Jesus aren't called to just float around from church to church or city to city. They are called to establish themselves within a local body to best serve other members of that body and grow as followers of Jesus Christ. Now, if you turn to 1 Corinthians 12, this is a, a classic passage <clears throat> for better or for worse on church membership. It's, of course, more relating to how to uh, love within the body and Paul's addressing spiritual gifts and he's trying to bring a bit of order to what's happening in Corinth. But it's a helpful passage in 1 Corinthians 12 from verses uh, 12 onwards <clears throat> to describe church membership. So in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul gives this analogy of a body, how a body has many parts, and each part is necessary for that body to function. So verse 12, Paul says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ... He then goes on to explain how one body part cannot say to another body part, I don't need you. Everyone needs one another in God's economy. Now, verse 24, he goes on to say how God has arranged the body, moving on, so that there may be no division in the body, but that members have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, that is very significant. We're called to such unity that if someone is suffering, we all suffer together. If someone is rejoicing, we all rejoice together. That's the kind of unity that we're called to. And the analogy of the body is used because it's just obvious to us that the body needs all its members to stay together. If my leg fell off right now, I would be in big trouble. We need all of our body parts to stay together. We must remain connected to each body part and to live in disconnection where there is no commitment to a body of believers is both to cut yourself off from the source of your nourishment, but it is also to disobey Christ's call for unity. Now, you might still hear that and then still think, well, why formal membership? Because we could still experience this without any formality to it. And so let me give three particular reasons why church membership is helpful to help us experience this kind of unity. <clears throat> the first reason, explicit membership, explicit, explicit membership in the sense of us making explicit our commitment. Explicit membership makes clear what was implicit in the early church. <coughs> it is overwhelmingly clear that there was a high expectation of commitment within the early church. That's just overwhelmingly clear. We see the unity that they're called to. We see them gathering day by day. It is also clear that there was no social gain in joining the church. When someone committed to the early church, it was because their absolute allegiance was given to Christ. Of course, there were exceptions here and there, But as a general rule, it was because there was absolute allegiance given to Christ. And so it's there was a, a compulsion to join the church. No one was really popping their head into the church at Colossae one week, taking a few weeks off and then checking out the church at Thyatira the week after. They were rooted and established in each church. Now, the reality for us is that we live in an environment where it is easy to appear as a Christian. Let's just accept that fact now. It's very easy in our environment to appear as a Christian. If you show up three out of four weeks at a church's Sunday gathering, you seem pretty committed, regardless of what's going on in your life. That's a very low bar of discipleship. We have a low commitment culture that we need to be aware of. Now, in the early church, there was an implicit hurdle that professing followers of Jesus had to jump. Namely, at best, they were losing any social status that they may have had, or at worst, they were risking their lives by identifying with other followers of Jesus. Just as, as it is the case now, in particular parts of the world, where you're risking your life, should you choose to identify with a particular body of believers. And yet that's the cost that we are called to. So the first reason is that we must recognize the context that we are in and realize the helpfulness of an explicit hurdle to help followers of Jesus understand the commitment required to a body of Christ. Because we are in a low commitment culture and it is very easy to appear committed when you are really not. And this hurdle helps us to realize that commitment. The second reason is that we need to know who it is that we are connected and accountable to. This is the reality, we need to know who it is that we are called to bear the burden of, as Paul says in Galatians 6, when he calls us to bear the burden, uh, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We need to know who it is that we are called to exhort when we're told to exhort one another while it is called today is this to every single follower of Jesus? Should we be going around Canberra doing this to every single person? Or do we have an obligation to do this uh, explicitly to the uncle of a member who's just visiting Canberra for six weeks and is joining with us for a while? What about our neighbor down the road who we see every day and who is a Christian but isn't part of our church? Where does our commitment explicitly lie? Now, of course we are called to love our neighbors as ourselves. So we're not going to say, not a member of my church, not talking to you. Of course, we're called to love everyone and particularly to have a commitment to those who also follow Jesus. But the clear precedent set in scripture is that we understand the one another's to be the one another's who have committed to the same body that we are committed to. For example, 1 Corinthians 5, which is a a classic example of church discipline that we'll get to, but if you flick a few few pages back, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is addressing an issue of immorality. And from verse four, he calls the church to assemble together in the name of the Lord Jesus and deliver this man, this man who has committed immorality, deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, notice that there is a clear expectation that this whole situation relates to those who are committed to the church of Corinth. There's just a clear assumption that this is connected, this is addressed to those who are committed to the church of Corinth. He is not calling them to judge people in Corinth who are outside of the church. He makes that clear later on. He's not calling them to judge followers of Jesus at Thessalonica. He is calling those who are part of the church of Corinth to address this matter that pertains to the church of Corinth so that the church of Corinth would remain pure. It is to do with those who are part of this body. And so likewise, we must know who it is that are part of the body that we belong to. We must know who it is that are part of Christ Church Tuggeranong. Church members also need to know whose authority they come under. So if you're not a member, then it's not clear exactly whose authority it is that you come under. When Paul tells the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 28, to pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his blood. Paul says here, care for all the flock. Who does he mean? Every follower of Jesus or all the flock whom God has made these Ephesian elders overseers to? Namely, those who are part of the church of Ephesus. That's the assumption here. Church members need to know exactly who their authority comes from. Who are the elders who are called to watch over your souls? Because God has made elders like Tobias and I to give an account. We will stand before the Lord and give an account for how we have cared for your soul. I will not stand before the Lord for every other follower of Jesus or fringe people who haven't been connected. I will not stand before the Lord. I will stand before the Lord for those who have clearly come under my authority and I'm gonna to have to give an account for their soul. When the writer of Hebrews tells the church to obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls, there is the obvious assumption there that they are not submitting to every church leader there is, but rather church leaders who are watching over their souls. Church membership helps us to understand who we are accountable to and who we are connected with. And finally, just very quickly, this last point on church membership, it reiterates the biblical command to selflessness and other esteem. We saw this last week in Philippians 2, how we are called to esteem others as more important than ourselves. We're called to be selfless in a selfish culture. And when we become a member We do not become members to a select few. When Damien became a member today, he didn't become a member connected with just James and Tobias, or just the people that he likes. He became a member connected with every single person, whether he likes it or not. It's a no takes back. You get connected with every single person to the same level. You're attached to that other member. And if we do not actively think of ourselves, if we don't actively think this way, then it is too easy to be selective with the people that we are accountable and connected to. It's just too easy for us to be selective. <clears throat> so committing, committing this way to a body of believers who bring all of their messiness, and this is the beauty of it, that we bring all of our messiness all of our different personalities, we bring them all to this body and we each commit to one another in the same way because we all come under the same Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And membership helps us as a tangible way to remember, yes, I am connected with every single person in this body. I'm called to hold them accountable. As you pray for them every week or every month, however you you are pleased to do it, you're reminded I'm not praying just for those that I like. I'm praying for every brother and sister that I love simply because they are connected to Christ. Third and final aspect is church discipline. Church discipline is the biblical practice which helps us to remember that we as Christ's church are meant to be a holy people. So in the same passage we were just in, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul encourages the church to discipline this person. And he says, because a little leaven leavens the whole lump, which for some of the chefs out there, you will know that a leaven does or yeast then goes throughout the dough and produces uh, it spreads throughout the dough. Leaven is symbolic of sin. Paul is saying, "Don't let sin spread throughout the church. A little leaven leavens the whole lump." So at times, corrective discipline is necessary to keep the church moving to purity rather than impurity. It's a necessary. Thing. Now, discipline is both formative and corrective. So church discipline is always happening. The main way it's happening is in formative discipline. What we're doing right now is an aspect of formative discipline. We're disciplining ourselves. You're disciplining yourself to listen through my croaky voice, to listen through various other things. You're disciplining yourself to listen to the word of God right now, disciplining yourself to gather with God's people. This is all shaping you for the good. <clears throat> That's formative. Corrective Church discipline is where members of the church are brought through a process of correction due to a a particular sin that they are unrepentant of. So this is not simply about when we sin. If it's simply about when we sin, then we'll all be under church discipline always. It's about unrepentant sin. Those who who have perpetuated a, a, a pattern of sin or dangerous practices and they remain unrepentant of Now, here, this is not so much about the how we do church discipline. That's for another time. Here, I just want to focus upon the why. Namely, why do we need church discipline? Why should we care about it? Three, uh, sorry, two particular reasons. Firstly, we should care about the holiness of God. Followers of Jesus ought to care deeply about the holiness of God. We see this rooted in the Old Testament with examples like Phineas in Numbers 25, remember where there was idol worship going on, it was a, a chaotic scene, a man took a foreign woman into the camp and Phineas, with such zeal for God's glory, ends up killing both the man and the woman, stabbing them. And God says of Phineas, he praises Phineas because he was jealous for my jealousy. Phineas is praised as someone who was jealous for God's glory. And what was happening then was not glorious to God. It was defaming God. We see this in Jesus as he cleanses out the temple. He cleanses out the impurities because he cares about the holiness of his house. We see this here with Paul as he tells the Corinthians to purge the evil person from you. Genuine followers of Jesus care about God's reputation and we see how God's reputation is on the line when His people live immorally. It doesn't honour the Lord when God's people remain in laziness or in immorality. It doesn't honour the Lord. And so God causes people to be holy as He is holy and discipline us so that we move toward this holiness, the holiness without which we will not see the Lord. Secondly and lastly, genuine love often requires confronting bad things. Behavior, Parents obviously know this. We saw a crucial aspect last week in discipleship that we are called to be peacemakers. Peacemakers is this biblical term that Jesus uses. We're not called to be peacekeepers. We don't simply keep the peace. We actually confront conflict in order to make peace. That's what we're called to. So if someone is destroying their life by drinking poison, then our love requires that we confront that bad behavior. Even if that brother or sister, for whatever reason, is not going to be pleased with us confronting them, nevertheless, we confront the bad behavior. It is a loveless thing. It is a loveless thing to allow those we are committed to to remain in patterns of destructive behavior. We've all heard the jarring statement that people say often in a crude way of you can go to hell. And we shouldn't be using that language, but if we are acting in a loveless way by not addressing someone's sinful behavior, we're effectively saying to that person, you can go to hell. You can go to hell and we don't care about it. So we're not going to confront the sin in your life. You can go straight on a path to hell. Love would say, we don't want you to do that. We're going to snatch you out, hating even the garments defiled by flesh. We're going to snatch you out of that and confront that sin in order to restore you to a place where you're not moving toward hell. Rather, you're moving toward the glory of God. So because we care about the holiness of Christ's church and because we love those we are committed to, recognizing those who we are committed to, then at times corrective discipline will be necessary. Let me just very briefly give three safeguards to ensure discipline is done well. Firstly, we must constantly examine ourselves for logs as we identify specks in others. That is, we must constantly examine ourselves for sin. We're, of course, not doing the uh, airline routine of make sure you care for someone else first and then you put your air jacket on as that sort of idea. Actually, we're always, identifying sin in our own lives we're always aware of sin in our lives so we ought to be constantly praying that prayer of Psalm 139 search me O Lord know my heart test me know my anxious thoughts see if there is any wicked way within me and lead me in the way everlasting Second safeguard, our desire is always restoration. Church discipline is never to cast that person out. It's to cast that person out if necessary in order to restore them to fellowship. Galatians 6.1, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Matthew 18, the classic example of church discipline. The first step is to go to your brother. And Jesus says, if he listens, you have gained that brother. That's our goal, to gain our brother or sister, to restore them to fellowship, to restore them to the path of righteousness. And third safeguard, church discipline is never vindictive or aggressive. A loving parent does not discipline their child out of spite or in an overflow of anger. A loving parent disciplines their child in a controlled way with the purpose being that that child is conformed to a healthy standard of living. And so likewise, our desire in discipline is that members are uh, brought back to a healthy standard of living. We don't discipline them in an aggressive, spiteful way. We don't discipline them because they wronged us in some way and we can't wait to publicly shame them. No, you, you yourself need to be disciplined. It is a way we, we do it in a way that is loving and gentle in order to restore that person. So it is never vindictive or aggressive. Now, that's to wrap up church discipline, just to wrap up the entire sermon. These are some of the whys of the practices we have as a church. And I hope that we can see exactly why uh, we do these things. They are not arbitrary practices. We gather on Sunday mornings, Sunday evenings and Wednesdays in very intentional ways. They are shaping us. They are of significant importance. They are of eternal consequences. They are shaping us to be more Christ-like. And for all of these things, like church membership and church discipline, for every other thing, we should be able to very clearly see how each one of these is shaping us to grow more in Christ-likeness, or we should not be doing them. We should not be doing them if we can't tangibly see how this is shaping us to grow in Christ-likeness. It is a very dangerous thing to uncritically follow practices that others do. Now, just as that is dangerous, it is a deadly thing if we do these things without a love and concern for Christ. That is a deadly thing. So just to finish this, I want to come back to what Andrew from Southern Districts preached on a few weeks ago. I think a helpful safeguard for all of these things, all of these practices that we have, so that they don't become uh, some sort of uh, legalistic to-do list. They must be undergirded by a deep desire for Christ. So uh, Christ's warning in Revelation 2:4 is against the Church of Ephesus to say, "I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. It is so easy to drift off. Someone once said, "This, this life is like a river you drift down the river, the destination is hell. You have to do something to not go there. If you want to go to hell, you don't have to do anything. You just drift down that path. We need to be intentional. We need to not drift. We need to be intentional in pursuing Christ. We need to be intentional in stirring one another on. And so all of these practices that we have. They are here to further this path of discipleship where we come to love and serve Christ with a greater reverence and intimacy. They are here so that we don't abandon our first love. They are here to remind us of our first love and that Christ should be first and foremost in everything that we do. And I can think of no better way to remind us Of this, than of taking the Lord's Supper together. We take the Lord's Supper every week to remind us that the foundation of our faith is the very gospel of Jesus Christ that we see in the body and blood of Christ. We remember that our entire lives ought to be shaped by this gospel that shows us both how wretched and how sinful we are, that shows us that we ought to have died a death like this that shows us that we have offended God in such a way that he would require such a death of his son. And yet that shows us the extent of God's love, how far his love is willing to go in order to keep his glory and to keep that covenant of redemption that he had made so that we who had been predestined before the foundation of the world would come to know Christ our Savior. This is what keeps us, this is the anchor of our souls. This is the anchor of our church to keep us from drifting off into legalistic practices or uncritically following entertainment, uh, consumeristic values that others may follow. This is the anchor, the body and blood of Christ.